This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. You get your Bible out. We're going to be turning today to a lot of passages in Scripture. And uh, so I want you to be able to find them. They'll all be in the New Testament and, and mostly in the Gospels. But if you'll... Just get your Bible and be ready. Uh, for our guests today, uh, we are finishing up today the, um, a series that we started. It's been all month, a series on, on our finances and on giving and um, what God kind of looks for in us. And so today's the last one. If you missed any of them, I hope you'll go back and uh, you can go on our podcast and, and watch or listen and uh, learn from uh, what we've been learning and what I've been learning uh, this month. I want to say welcome to the Colossians over here, Colossi Baptist Church. And they are, um, gosh, their church comes here and and does retreats down here all year long and and probably, I don't know, half a dozen times they send groups down here. And um, so it's always good to to see you guys and have you uh, be part of uh, what we're doing here at Nags Head. They're getting ready to break ground on a new building. They've got a new pastor. God help him. And a uh, new pastor coming in on a building project that will uh, that can kill any man. So um, uh, we just pray and, and hope it's, it all goes really well. But thanks for being with us. One of the great illustrations, uh, biblically, of money and temptations, the temptations that money brings, is shown in the attitude of Judas Iscariot and the attitude he displayed toward money. You know, nobody thinks of Judas with positive thoughts. You know, we think Judas Iscariot, we all, nobody thinks, nobody has any good thing to say about about Judas. After all, he's, you know, he's at the top of history's all-time bad guys list. Nobody names their kid Judas. Although I think it might be a good name to name your cat. It'd be a good name for a cat. You evil animal, you Judas. Not a dog for sure, but cat. He's the disciple who betrayed Jesus, isn't he? And he would prove in things he said and things he did, he would prove from what we, a little bit we know about him in Scripture, that he loved money more than he loved Jesus. He would argue. One time a woman came to Jesus shortly before his death and, and anointed his feet with a very expensive ointment. And uh, then she took her hair, her long hair, and she wiped his feet off with her hair. And Judas got, he was ticked off. Because he said, you know, we could have sold that and taken the money and given it to the poor. That's, that's a good thing to do, I guess. But Jesus said, you know what? Here's the deal, bud. You'll always have the poor with you. They'll always be here. But I'm just here for a short time. And what she did... He, Judas didn't know. She's getting him ready for his burial. And he didn't know that. His death. He, he didn't, Judas didn't get it. Um, he would have taken that. He said, we should have taken that and sold it. Uh, he, he then made a, a deal to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. John writes in his gospel about Judas, he calls him a thief. One of the 12. He says he was a thief. 
Now, if John saw that in Judas, didn't Jesus? And of course the answer is, yeah, of course he did. Certainly he did. But Jesus' security and Jesus' trust was not in money. I can't help but think that the, the fact that Judas was selected, he was appointed to, he actually was the treasurer of the disciples. Whatever money they collected and they had in common, they, here Judas, you take care of it. To a thief. Who would show himself to be a thief. And I, I kind of think there's probably just in that fact, there's a good lesson on money. Uh, Jesus knew that money and how to handle it would be a problem for many of us, maybe most of us. That's why he taught about it. He knew our temptation about financial things would be to worry. And if, again, if you weren't here last week, we went to Matthew chapter 6 and spent time with the solution to worry. And Jesus gives it there. Uh, so please go back and, and watch or listen. He knew we'd be tempted to put our financial, uh, our security in our financial and material holdings instead of in him. So for the disciples to get this, that money's going to be an issue. Money's going to be a problem. Money's going to be a temptation. He taught some powerful lessons that would become important in the early church. And I want to wrap up our series with some of these lessons this morning. Now, I asked this question in the last gathering, so I'll ask it today. How many of you are Baptists or grew up in Baptists with a Baptist background? Raise your hand. Not ashamed of it. Although sometimes maybe you should be. Um, uh, I'm... I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to blow your Baptist boat out of the water today. So if you're, you know, put your seatbelt on and, uh, and hang in there with me. First of all, the, one of the lessons that I want us to look at today is found in Luke chapter 18, but it's the lesson that says, God looks for more than my money. God looks for more than my money. Luke chapter 18, I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable. A parable was a story, a fictional story that Jesus would use to teach an eternal spiritual principle. Right? So he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on anyone else. So he's talking about the self-righteous, the very hyper-religious who felt like they were above everybody else because of their religiosity. So he tells this parable. Two men went to the temple complex to pray. One, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest of the Jewish, if I can use the word, denominations. I mean, they kept the letter of the law, dotted the I's and crossed the T's and so forth. And weren't ashamed to do it publicly and let everybody see how religious they were. He, one was a Pharisee that went to the temple to pray. The other was a tax collector. Tax collectors in this culture were Roman employees and were the most despised people in, in, in Israel, in Judah and, and uh, Judea. And they, I mean, they were hated by everybody because they, not only did they work for the Roman government, but they also extorted money from people. And they took more than they should have and pocketed what they didn't pay to Rome. So they they were not respected at all. They were lumped together with, with the prostitutes and, and you know, the, the drunkards and so forth, all the worst, the lepers, all the worst sinners. They were lumped together with them. So you got these two men. And the Pharisee took his stand at the temple and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, 
unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this, and he points over to where I can imagine to where the tax collector was standing, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. We have so many Baptists today. A tenth is called a what? A tithe. I give a tithe of everything I get. That's the uh, Pharisee. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven. He looked down and he began striking his chest. And he said, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this one, the tax collector, This one went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Giving to God, one thing I've noticed about and got from this story is is this fact. Giving to God can be a self-righteous act, can it? In fact, think about, you know, because this Pharisee, He gave a tenth, he gave a tithe. And anybody, you stop and think about it, anybody can give to God. You know, I don't think anybody in this room, as as the offering bag went by, I don't think anybody in this room was told by the usher, no thanks, we don't want your money. We we wouldn't do that. We would not be a a Baptist church if we did that. (laughs) Anybody can give to God. Even non-believers can give to God, can't they? So it must not be, think with me here, it must not be the act of giving, but something deeper that God desires from us. Then there's a story, turn back with me to Mark, Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12, I love this story. Mark chapter 12, beginning of verse 41. sitting across across from the temple treasury. That's the place where they give their offerings. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched, Jesus watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, He said to them, to his disciples, I I assure you, I, I, I guarantee you this. This poor widow has put in more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed. All she had to live on. This happened, this story, and it's, it's also told in Luke chapter 21. This happened the week that he would be crucified. This is in between the triumphant entry on Palm Sunday, uh, in between that and and, uh, Good Friday, if you will. And uh, he spent a lot of time that week teaching in the temple. And he has just gotten done, if you were to back up and read previous to that, he, he has just gotten done blasting the hypocrites, blasting the the scribes, the teachers of the law who knew the Bible backwards and forward, blasting the Pharisees just tore them apart. And then he sat down. And I think because maybe he 
of the things he said to the scribes and Pharisees, the disciples kind of said, let's go see what's happening over there. You know, let's kind of get away from him a little bit. He sits down and he observes as people come by the temple to give. And there is this place where they are called the court of the women. And in the court of the women were 13 chests that are attached to the walls there in the court. And they're trumpet shaped, not like a trumpet that you and I would think of, a brass instrument with three valves and a spit valve, you know, that, that, that is played in a band, but a trumpet like a ram's horn that they would blow, a shofar. And, and it was inverted so that the large part of the, of the trumpet was down at the bottom and at the, and at the top was small. That's where you dropped your coins, big enough to take any coins that you might drop in. So everybody's there coming by and giving their offerings. Of, there are 13 of these chests around the court, attached 13 of them around the walls. Nine of the 13 were for the receipt of what was legally due by worshipers, what the law required, or their tithes. Nine of them, you came and put your tithe in, your tenth. The other four were strictly for voluntary gifts, free will offerings. And I think there's a point here in, in just a simple little story that jumped out to me that we shouldn't miss, and that's, it, that's this. God sees and he knows my motive for giving. Can you imagine this morning, as the offering bag was placed and it went around, um, if Jesus was sitting beside you, watching what you put in, or if he's sitting beside you at home as you go online to give however it is you give, and Jesus is sitting there watching, uh, you enter the numbers and so forth. Can, can you imagine that? We, we might give a little differently, uh, I think. They didn't know Jesus necessarily was sitting there, but he sees and he knows our motive for giving. As he did in the story, he's not concerned, hear me, with the amount as with the heart behind it. He sees our motive for giving. And here's a good illustration of motive. Can you believe that there are people in churches that try to control what's going on by their finances, by what they give? Oh, yeah, I've had, not here. Well, one time we did have here a lady who wanted to do that. She wanted to make a sizable contribution, but she wanted to be in charge. I didn't tell this in the last service, but I'll tell it now because it's one of my favorite stories. She came, she came and met with the elders and said, here, I've been holding my, my tithe for the last several months, and unless this or this or that happens, I'm not going to give it. And it was sitting on the table in an envelope, literally. And the elders uh, will remember what happened. I looked at her, and I took that envelope, and I pushed it right back to her. And I said, take your money and leave. got real quiet in here. You know, here's, 
Jesus watching this story, uh, and one of my favorite stories, the rich came by, and, and, and the rich gave a lot. Probably they took longer. How do you know they gave a lot? Took a longer time for them to deposit their coins. They spent more time dropping them in, and maybe one at a time, clank, clank, you know, maybe some people could take notice. Man, that was a loud clank over there. Big coins. They gave out of, Jesus said they gave out of their abundance, meaning they they had plenty, their surplus. It, what they were giving wasn't going to hurt them. They weren't going to miss it. And then along comes this unnamed poor widow. And she gives the very smallest of coins, two of them, and they equal what would be, the best way to explain it, they equal two-fifths of a cent. Mark says, she gave very little. And Jesus says, he calls her this poor widow. Mark, or Mark writes the word down poor, and Jesus says poor. And the word that's used there for poor is not the word for a peasant. It's the word for a pauper. It's the, it means the extreme opposite of the rich. She's at the bottom financially. Well, the disciples, as, as I said, they had scattered after hearing Jesus give the hypocrites the what for. So he calls them back. Hey, hey, guys, come here. Come back. I want you to watch something. He knew what was about to take place. And he watched the rich put theirs in, and he said, watch this, the widow. And he saw, they saw what she put in, and then he asked them the question. So what do you guys think? Who gave more? How would you answer in monetary value, the rich gave far more than she did. But Jesus needed to make a point with these disciples. And he said, they didn't give more. She did because he said she gave everything she possessed. She gave all. And the wording there, the scholars say it may very well mean that she gave in her two little coins, she gave more than all the rich put together is what he was saying. In proportion to her means, she far outgave the rich. She had no surplus. She had no abundance. She didn't give a tithe. She gave 100%, didn't she? Wow. So is that what God wants, Rick? Is that what you're saying God wants? All my money? No, I don't think so. God doesn't want all my money. He wants all my heart. He wants all my heart. He wants us as believers to see this. This may be the most important principle of the entire series because this is life-changing. Once you grasp this and get a hold of this, he wants you and me to see that everything I possess is his. And everything that I possess is his, and he has entrusted me and you to be good managers of what belongs to him. And obviously this widow, and who knows, what kind of source of income she might or might not have had. Widows often had no source of income. They probably didn't work and her husband died and we don't know if he had saved, didn't save much evidently. Most often they were relying on their family members to take care of them. We don't know what income she had, but it's very clear that by what she does, she's counting on God to meet her needs, isn't she? Too often we try to answer the question about giving by stating an amount. Well, here's what you should give. Rather than, 
But here's what God's looking for in you and me. He's looking for my heart, and he's looking for all of my heart. It's really, it's easier to say, well, I'll give this much, rather than to say, God, everything I have is yours. It all belongs to you. I appreciate Scott as he was coming up to help us worship with our offering. And Scott made that statement. He said, it all belongs to God anyway, doesn't it? It does. Matthew chapter 23. Look back there with me. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 23 and then verse 24. And here he is. He's getting ready to, he's already been this whole chapter. You can go back and read. He's unloading again on those same guys. Woe to you, he says, scribes and Pharisees. Woe means bad news for you. Shame on you, hypocrites. You hypocrites. And then look what he says. You pay a tenth. You pay a tithe of mint, dill, and cumin. You're so concerned about paying the 10% that every time it's time to give, you go in and raid the kitchen cabinets and bring the spices in and give 10% of them. That's how strict you are about keeping that tithe. Yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These things should have done without neglecting the others. You've neglected important things. And then he says, so he's already called them hypocrites. He says, blind guides. They're supposed to be the leaders of Judaism in, in uh, Judea for the people. He says, but you're blind guides. Where can a blind guide take you? Your blind guides. And then he says, you strain out a gnat. You're so particular about everything in the world. And they were with Jesus and his disciples. Oh, your disciples, I see. You know, I noticed they didn't wash their hands before they ate. <laughs> guys, how many of you have ever eaten without washing your hands? All right. The Pharisees would have been all over you. You strain at the things that don't really matter, but you swallow, gulp down a camel. See what he's saying? And this is one of the two times in Jesus' teaching about money that he mentions a tithe. <laughs> Only two times does he talk about tithing. What? Why? Well, the tithe, which means 10%, was part of the Old Testament law. In fact, it predates the Old Testament law. You'll find in the book of Genesis, a fellow by the name of Abraham, you've heard of him. This is before the Mosaic law. He gives a tithe to a high priest named Melchizedek. So it predates the law, but when God through Moses gave Israel their government, how it would be funded, you read the book, books of Leviticus especially, the funding of their government included the tithe. So the tithe in reality for Israel was a tax. It's how we pay for our government and the services it provides. So the truth of the matter is when they gave a tithe, they didn't do so out of love for God. They did so out of obedience to the law. Now, they did have other opportunities to give beyond the tithe, as we saw those other four containers on the walls for their free will love offerings, their offerings of thanksgiving. They could do that. I find it really fascinating that he commends the scribes and Pharisees for tithing. Like, oh, you do good. You tithe your spices, man. You go that far. 
he commends them for keeping the law so strictly. And then in the very next breath, he calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. He says, you swallow it, gnats, and you strain it, gnats, and swallow camels. The tithe was part of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and one of the words, phrases in one of the songs we sang about when Jesus was crucified, he said, it was finished. What was finished? One of the things that was finished was the Old Covenant. It died, the Old Covenant died with Jesus on the cross. Remember the words, and we'll celebrate communion next Sunday, and we'll repeat these words, read these words. Remember what Jesus said about the cup? This cup is the New Covenant. In my blood. What is the new covenant? What does that mean, Rick? The new covenant, let me just make it, if I can make it really simple. The new covenant means grace has come. Grace has arrived. The new covenant means salvation is not by keeping rules, but by believing in the Savior. It is a free gift, salvation is. It's not earned by your tithes and by your keeping feasts, Jesus said. That explains... Baptists listening, that explains why we never see the New Testament churches from the book of Acts, from the start of the church in Acts chapter 2, through the epistles, all those letters written to churches, we never see tithing or being taught to tithe happening. Am I rattling some things yet? You know, or some of you are going... What Jesus was pointing out with the widow and with her two tiny coins is what I would call the grace model of giving. So how we're supposed to give, right? We've been talking about that for three weeks. How do we give? The grace model of giving is what Jesus was pointing at and what the New Testament was about. Grace meaning I'm not legally restricted or forced to give, but I give from my heart. So grace doesn't mean a tithe. And please hear me, listen. Grace doesn't necessarily mean I can stop with a tithe either. (laughs) Grace means it's not my 10% that God expects. God, and one more time, God expects all of my heart. That includes my finances. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And then where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He connects my heart to my treasure. And he wants all my heart. That means he wants all of my life, including my finances. He wants all my life to bring him glory. So let me give you some bullet points about what this model of grace, grace model of giving is about. And uh, we're going to go through and read a bunch of scriptures. And, um, and a, lot of, a lot of them are in your notes. And uh, I'll read some as we go through. First of all, it's the love model that says, I will love God with all I have. I'll love God with all I have. Again, that verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart. I will love God with all I have. It's the generosity model that we read about in the very first church in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. I'm going to read those for you, or you can turn there with me if you want to. Acts 4, 32 to 35. Now, a large group of those who believed the large group of those who believe, meaning the church there in Jerusalem, were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own. What does that mean? Let me me give it to you in Spanish, and that will help. Can I do that? 
Because some of you say, I don't speak Spanish. You'll get this. Mi casa es su casa. You ever hear that? None of them said that what they owned was their own, but instead they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They're preaching and amazing things are happening. And great grace was on all of them. And then Luke says, and here's what happened by this great grace that was on all of them. There was not a needy person among them in the whole church, not a needy person. Why? Because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. So they bring in these offerings, they sell properties, they sell lands, and they bring it to the church and give it to the apostles so it can be distributed to those who had need. And that's what it says. Then it was distributed for each person's basic needs. The generosity model that we just read is the model that says all that is mine is God's. And then you jump over to the Apostle Paul's teaching to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, where there are a lot of giving principles there. He's talking to this church about giving an offering that's going to be taken to Jerusalem, where the Christians in Jerusalem, there's been a terrible famine, and they are literally starving to death. They can't work. They can't work the farms. They're having a tough time. And so he appeals to the churches in, in Greece, in Europe. He says, you guys, you, you, can you help these people out, these brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, we can. And the church at Corinth said, sure we can. We'll, we'll give, yeah, we'll do it. But they were having a hard time putting the offering together. You know, They said, yes, we will. But Paul's saying, you read the stories. I hadn't seen it yet. <laughs> Hadn't heard of it yet. So he's teaching them about the grace of giving. He says, first of all, it's the model of genuine, not hypocritical faith. Jesus told those Pharisees and scribes, you're hypocrites. Grace giving is the model of genuine, not hypocritical faith. In 2 Corinthians 8.8, he says, I am testing the genuineness of your love by calling you to account that you said you would give, and now I'm saying, put your money where your mouth is. I want to see how real your faith is, how real your love is. It's not hypocritical. Then it's the model of Christ giving salvation for us. Grace giving, when I give, I'm, I'm, I'm modeling what Jesus did when he provided salvation, because he says to them in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, although he was rich, talking about when he was in heaven before he came to earth. Although he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so by his poverty, by him giving it all, you might become rich. It's the model of God's salvation. Then it's the proportion model. Acts 11.29 says, everyone giving as much as they could. Giving as much as you can. Verse 11 of chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, you give in proportion to what you have. Other translations say according to your ability. Because some of us have the ability to give more than others, don't we? But all give is the point. And Paul calls that attitude, the proportional model, he calls that generosity because he says in verse 13, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with others. Then it's a planned model. 
It's a planned model. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 5 and verse 7. He says, therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers. He's getting ready to send a couple guys to Corinth to pick up this offering. And he wants them to know they're going to be there. They're going to travel and they're going to come to your church to pick up this offering to take to Judea, to the Jerusalem church. So you need to have it ready. Don't wait till they get there. He says, so it seems like extortion. I want the necessary to send the brothers to go on ahead and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not an extortion. Each person, how do we do this? We plan it. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart. I don't wait till Sunday morning to decide what I'm going to give to God usually. In fact, I, I, I do my giving online and I've already told the online people, here's what you take out of my checking account every time. It's already planned. I know it's budgeted. Right? That's what Paul is saying here. You've already decided. You plan it. You make it happen. It's the planned model. Then it's, you, you, this is a verse you're familiar with. It's the cheerful model. Verse 7, last part of the verse, he says, For God loves a cheerful giver. And, you know, we've all been to churches where the pastor, some pastor has gotten up and correctly said, And, you know, the meaning of the Greek word for cheerful means hilarious. It does. It means have a great time giving. Enjoy this. It's cheerful giving. It's the model that brings blessing. In verses 6 and 8, Paul says, The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. And this is in the context of this offering he's talking about. Jesus said, he's quoted by Paul in Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than to receive, didn't he? That's, those are the Lord's words. It's the model that produces thanksgiving. When you give, somebody's going to benefit from that, he said, and they're going to give thanksgiving to God, verses 11 and 12. As you are enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God for us, for the ministry of this service, this offering is not only supplying the needs of the saints there in Jerusalem, but it's also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving. They're going to thank God. It's the model that brings God glory, verse 13. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. And Paul says it's the model, this grace model is the model that gives evidence of your faith. Verse 13, for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you're obedient to the good news of Christ. It shows that you really do love the Lord, that you're obedient to him. Evidence of your faith. It's the model that produces love and prayers. When you give and that money gets to those folks there in Jerusalem, verse 14, and in their prayers, the recipients, in their prayers, they will have deep affection for you. Even though these people had never met and probably never on this side of heaven would ever meet. But I guarantee you this. When these folks at Corinthia and Corinth, when they died and went to heaven, if there were some of those Jerusalem Christians in heaven, they were standing at the gate waiting for them to hug them and thank them and say, God bless you. Thank you for giving. We prayed for you. It's the model of God's grace working in you. Verse 14. Because of the surpassing grace of God on you. It shows God's working in my life. 
but I give by grace and I give generously. And then Romans chapter 12, verse 8 tells us that some in the church have the grace gift of giving. And we call it a grace gift because the word, the Greek word for gift in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 about gifts, is the Greek word charis. And charis means grace. So it's the grace gift of giving, which means you have been given a supernatural ability to give. Each believer, some of us have. Not all of us, all of us don't have this gift. But those who do, it's a supernatural ability to give and you actually seek opportunities to be generous with your finances. There are some people like that. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, thank God for bringing you around. Now, some of you have, have been wondering, as I've been sharing this, um, I've been a tither all my life, you're, you're thinking. All these years I've been a tither. I've been taught to give by tithing to the Lord. So have I been wrong? And the answer to that is, I hope not. Because that's how Gail and I give. In fact, at Nags Head Church, uh, we expect our staff, our elders, our pastors, our, our ministry team leaders, we expect them all to give at least a tithe. Why? Is that some kind of legalistic thing? No, but you cannot lead if you're not leading. We can't ask you to be generous if we're not being generous ourselves. We can't ask you to trust God if we're not trusting God. In fact, if you've grown in your spiritual life to trust God, and, and for, for some people now, for me, I, I began to be taught to give and, and, and the whole tithing principle when I was a kid and I've grown up with that. It's just kind of, for me, it's, it's second nature. It's automatic. I don't even think twice about giving that much. So for me to give more than that also is, is, is something that I feel honored to do. But I don't think twice about that. Why? Because I've grown up hearing about it. But for those of you that maybe didn't grow up hearing about that, and you hear about it, and but you've, maybe recently, some of you, your stories are amazing. You've learn to trust God by giving him at least that amount, 10% of your income. I, I think that says about you, you've got a pretty strong faith. Because most people would look at you and say, you're crazy. But here, get this. I think what I want to hear you, what I want you to hear is this. Don't limit your faith. Because for too many people, the tithe becomes so literal and so exact that it becomes, instead of an opportunity to be generous, it becomes a ceiling on their faith. Did you get that? I've done, done my part. I've given God my 10%. And the fact is that God, that's not looking for a magic number. I know of Christians, millionaires. I know one myself, but I haven't heard of them. You say, well, I'm not a millionaire. I, I get that. And you, you probably could not do what I'm about to say, but I know of Christian millionaires who have learned to live on 10% and give God 90. I know people like that. But again, it's not, please hear me, it's not a magic number that God's looking for. He's looking for my heart, all of my heart. And for Gail and I, our practice is to give almost all our giving, probably 90 9% of our giving that we do every year, we give to God through this church. And there's a lot of, you know, the robocalls that you get about all these opportunities to give. And, and uh, we've just budgeted, and our giving goes 
through Nag said, church, we give to God that way. So we, you know, when they call and I try to be kind to them, they want my money. And I'll, and I'll just, I make this statement. You know what? Thank you for calling me. And what you're doing is a good thing. But I've already promised all of my charitable giving for the year. I don't have any more to do with it. We uh, give to God through this church, and, and you say, why do you do that? What about all these other ministries? And, you know, we give to God through the church because that's what we saw in the book of Acts. What's what Paul taught the Corinthians? We're blessed here, Nag said church, to support missionaries. And Scott got up and did a great job, and we thank God for the, for the honor that FCA has given us. But we were blessed here to support other ministries and other missionaries with what's given here. So when you give here, it's, it is going to some other places. We give about, I don't know, I haven't done the, the math. I should have done the math. But every year we give about 15% of every dollar that comes in to our church, 15% or more goes out to missions. We include them in our budget. In fact, if you look at our budget, those of you who have a copy of it, look at it in the first the first line item, line one, the 100 items in our budget is missions. It's at the top. But like you, we get phone calls and we get appeals. And, uh, but we, Gail and I, we're, we're given here. You know why? Because I believe what God's doing at Nagsay Church. I see it happening in your lives. So let me wrap up. God places value on wholehearted commitment. That's where God's value is. These disciples, these men that saw the, the, the widow and, and that heard him the way he talked to the scribes and Pharisees, they needed to learn that lesson that God places value on wholehearted commitment because in just a very few days, in some cases, they would be severely tested. In Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, Jesus was being tested by the Pharisees and the Herodians, a political group. It's a scary thing, by the way, when politics and religion mix together. Can I say that? They were trying to trap him into saying it was wrong to pay taxes to the Roman government. And the reason was Rome was ruled by Caesar, and Caesar was a pagan. And they were under tyranny there in, in Judea. And, but if Jesus said, no, it's wrong to pay taxes... To Rome, then the Pharisees and the Herodians would instantly charge him with sedition against the government. You're trying to overthrow the government, aren't you? Have him arrested. So they ask him a question. Should we pay taxes or not? What do you think, Jesus? Well, knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, why are you testing me? I'll tell you what. Somebody, who's got a coin? Who's got a denarius? Who's got a Roman coin? Bring me a Roman coin. So somebody hands him a Roman coin and he holds it up. And he says, whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription is on this coin? And they answered, Caesar's. And then he said to them, when you give back to Caesar the things that are his, and you give back to God the things that are his. What's God's? There's, a, there's words from a hymn. I can't remember what. If I took the time and started singing it, I could remember what old song it is. But it says in praise to God, it says, Stamp thine own image here on my heart. 
stamp your image on my heart. I give back to Caesar, and we by April 15th, we all get to do that, right? I give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's, and that's okay. Jesus said you pay taxes, but he said, but you give back to God. What's God's? Well, how much of what I have is God's, church? All of what I have is God's. Everything I am, everything I possess. Would you bow with me in prayer? I hope God has used his word these last four Sundays to challenge us all about our finances and our giving. And, and But you may be here today, and maybe this is the first Sunday you've been, or maybe you've been all four, but you may say, Rick, I'm really struggling with these things that you're teaching. I'm really struggling with Jesus' words. I'm really struggling with the example of the first church about about that, but but you know you know in your heart you know you you could be you should be a better steward of what the Lord's given you, and I want you to just take a moment in silence, just to tell God that God I I could be doing better if you could I I should be God I'm struggling with this, I need your help. Take a moment and share that with Him. Lord, today we want to believe your words. We want to believe your words where you said that where our treasure is, our heart is there as well. And where you said if we seek your kingdom first, seek your righteousness first, that you'll meet all of our needs. Lord, would you help us to live that? We believe that you want more than our money. You want our hearts. And would you, you already have. We just maybe not don't realize it. Stamp your image on our hearts. Would you help anyone who this morning is struggling with being good managers of what you've provided them? For them to see that it's a matter of, Lord, I'm just going to give it all over to you and trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world. 